From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia. Today we're going to be talking with Craig Scott, who is the Group Manager for Toyota North America. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my dear friend Patrick Malloy. Patrick, how we doing? Hey, Andrew, how are you? And we're joined on Skype by Chris Jackson in London. Chris, how are you? All well here. Yeah? How's, uh, how's uh, the weather over there? Uh, weather's okay. I thought you were going to ask me about Megxit, so I think I've probably had a wind in oh, about the weather. To be I was going to ask you about Megxit, <laughs> and Patrick uh, advised me that it was too touchy of a subject. That I shouldn't bring it up. Now that you've opened the door, I feel like you have to have some pretty substantive comments. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I can't do the uh, sort of uh, secret intelligence services thing, but I can neither confirm or deny my views on Mix. Um, <laughs> I think that, <laughs> no, that's I mean, actually look, probably yeah. quite wise. Patrick, how's the royalty in Ireland? Loaded uh, question. Not going to answer that one, huh? <laughs> not sure how to deal, not sure how to deal with that? I'll answer a non-existent, Andrew. Okay. Well, that would be accurate, so we'll go with that. On a more important note... <laughs> Uh, I saw RMI has some uh, pretty interesting hydrogen tools that they uh, came out with. Is that accurate? Yes, we have a hydrogen decarbonizing, uh, decarbonization impact for industry tool and a report to go alongside it that explains uh, a lot of the uh, potential and challenges around uh, developing our hydrogen economy going forward. It's going to be an interesting read for everybody, but also, um, yeah, we have an online kind of tool that you can use to kind of estimate different grid systems and different processes of production. So I recommend everybody quickly rush to the website and download it. Well done. You can add another tree down in the woods after the uh, Hydrogen Council's latest report as well. I can add to my growing <laughs> mountain of hydrogen reports to get through. Yeah, Chris, you were, uh, that reminds me, you were in Versailles, were you not, for the Hydrogen Council CEO meeting? How did that go? Uh, yeah, well, so I mean, I was there for the for the um, the drinks and the launch. Sadly, I'm not the CEO of a uh, Fortune 500 company, so um, really? work in progress, but uh, not yet. So, um, but no, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, I think the greatest sort of thing about being there is just to see the energy and the enthusiasm. I mean, I think people who might remember when the Hydrogen Council first launched in 2017, I think they were just under 30 members, and today they must be fairly close to 100. They had 80 at the launch. They hadn't even had time to update all the members in the actual report document which i thought was quite interesting um but no i mean it's fantastic i think um you know the numbers they came out with i think they were saying that uh, to half the price of green hydrogen by 2030 would need around uh, 70 to 80 billion dollars of global investment which you know some people might look at as a large number but in reality global energy infrastructure spending is about 1.2 to 1.4 trillion dollars a year so in the grand context of things um it's very very manageable and certainly if you see the size of some of these projects being announced today uh, i think we'll get there fairly quickly so i thought it was hugely positive excellent well cool how was Versailles? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was trying to get more. I was trying to get more information about what it's like to be invited to Versailles, but I guess we're not going to get that. We're going to be more substantive today. It's all well, I mean, it's know. all I mean, business you, you, here at Everything About Hydrogen, people. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, uh, Versailles is is pretty beautiful. I mean, it was uh, pretty heavy on the security side because you didn't just have the Hydrogen Council; you also had President Macron was doing a uh, huge uh, event in the actual palace itself. I, I tell you what, it was quite interesting because uh, because not all the people who all the CEOs and their sort of executives who'd been invited to the Hydrogen Council were also invited to go across to the dinner with Macron. So you know, there was a bit of a, a two tier system even going on amongst the attendees. Uh, next year, Chris. Next year. 
Well, knows? okay, guys, we've um, got to jump on the call with uh, with Craig here in a second. But uh, before we do that, let's do the quick uh, pre-call debrief. Patrick, what are you most interested to hear about from Craig? I, I, I suppose, you know, Toyota is involved in uh, a couple of different aspects of the, the mobility space around hydrogen. It's going to be very interesting to hear about what exactly they they plan on doing in the next couple of years, what the rollout and buildup around that is going to look like, and uh, how infrastructure, particularly in the U.S., I'm interested in, uh, you know, how they're going to build beyond California and into the next kind of set of markets. So, yeah, I think they've got a bit of a challenge ahead of themselves right there. So that should be that should be interesting. How about you, Chris? Toyota have been a real advocate for hydrogen and fuel cell vehicles for, you know, a decade now. And so it's it's really encouraging in some ways to sort of see that there is this uh, attraction in some sense as if Toyota hadn't stuck at it and they'd pulled out. I don't think where we'd be today. I know tangibly the fact that people can get in a fuel cell electric vehicle today and they can drive one around and they can see how they operate makes a huge difference to public acceptance and in the uk pretty much all the major fuel cell electric vehicles on the roads are toyota mirai so it'll be great to kind of learn a little bit about their plans for scaling up some of the challenges they've had and what they're thinking about next i think it's going to be a great show Hi, Craig. This is Andrew Leadham from Everything About Hydrogen. How are you doing? Hey, Andrew. Good. How about yourself? Hey, Greg. Hey, Lovely to meet you. Good to meet you guys as well. Thank you. As many of our listeners probably don't need an introduction to uh, to Toyota and the brand itself, uh, if you could just start off and give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and your role at Toyota North America, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Happy to do so. So uh, my name is Craig Scott, and uh, I've been uh, with Toyota for uh, 20 years, uh, all in the uh, advanced technology space, uh, primarily in hydrogen. And I'm the uh, the GM for a group called uh, Electric Vehicles Technologies Office. And what that means is we're, our area is responsible for helping to develop um, new fuel cell vehicles, um, as well as uh, the infrastructure that supports them. Um, so that's uh, a lot of, obviously, a lot of in-house work and a lot of uh, external collaborations with, uh, with other uh, parties and stakeholders. Uh, and we also manage the, uh, the heavy duty truck program out of uh, out of our office here in uh, in Los Angeles, and that's a project we we call Project Portal, and that's the uh, the world's first um, OEM built uh, Class Eight heavy duty truck running uh, uh, entirely on hydrogen. So, Craig, Toyota have kind of been more bullish than probably most of the the kind of notable competitors uh, around fuel cell electric vehicles, and, and in particular in the the personal kind of mobility space. How did that come about, or, or you know, what was the the kind of the trigger that led led you guys down this pathway? It's a very good question. So, the reason why we're we've been so bullish on hydrogen, kind of for many many maybe many reasons. We um, started development for uh, for the Mirai or for the fuel cell program in the same year. We started developing the Prius, so that was uh, 1992. So that means we've uh, we've got a lot of uh, in-house uh, embedded knowledge uh, in how to make uh, and design fuel cells and fuel cell systems and hydrogen tanks and all the uh, ancillary parts. And um, so from that point of view, I think we have a, a really strong kind of core competency uh, in this area, and it, it's one reason why we we, uh, we have a lot of confidence that technology um, is uh, scalable and and affordable. Uh, for people, and uh, that was really sort of coupled with uh, the development we've had in, in hybrids, uh, kind of the mid 2010 area uh, era, when we found a glide path to make a, a Mirai at a, at a price point that would be affordable for customers to buy. So, kind of the culmination, the combination of, of both our efforts in, in hybrids as well as our efforts in hydrogen, led us to, uh, to, to sort of where we are today. And 
we continue to be really bullish on hydrogen because we do see that there are no sort of fundamental barriers to, to a mass adoption of the technology, which is really sort of what we're all after here. So selling, you know, a few a few cars is not really meaningful or impactful from a, a greenhouse gas reduction point of view, but sort of converting the whole fleet uh, over to, to low emissions or zero emissions vehicles is ultimately the goal. So we think that to do that, uh, you, know, you need to have a car that looks and acts and drives and feels like people's uh, current technology, So, um, which is very much what uh, what a Mirai and, and what fuel cell vehicles are. It's very transparent, I think, to the user. Um, no one would really know you're operating on, on hydrogen unless someone told you um, um, other than the fact that the vehicle's you know, much quieter. So uh, these are sort of the key reasons why we, we, we remain really bullish uh, on, on hydrogen. And it's not to say that we aren't encouraged and enthusiastic about uh, batteries as well. Uh, uh, this, there's definitely a role uh, for both technologies in the space as we move forward. I tell people all the time, look, we, we don't sell one model of Toyota today, nor do we sell one engine today. We sell multiple of so both, and that's because customers like choices and not uh, not everything meets uh, the needs of every every single person. So we need to have diversity and, and we need to have compelling offerings uh, for folks in order to uh, to really grab the market and, and make the transition um, from a carbon-based uh, transportation society to a, to a zero-carbon one. Just jumping in on that, I mean, you talked about a glide path towards uh, making a sort of commercially viable proposition. And then you've sort of spoken about the fact that Toyota is not sort of purely on fuel cell, it's also battery. One of the things we wanted to ask was kind of how you see the market for passenger um, fuel cell electric vehicles growing. And so with those two things, are you sort of envisaging a battery will dominate in the short term? And then as that glide path continues, you'll see greater sort of variety. Um, You know, are you seeing that fuel cells will be a specific segment on the market or a specific use case? Um, Is it going to be country by country? Maybe you can just kind of flesh this out a little bit more for us and give us some context on that. Sure, sure. It's a multi-dimensional sort of problem in, in question, and I'll say that you know hydrogen vehicles grow in, in the market, um, sort of commensurate with the infrastructure availability. So, if, if we take California for example as a uh, place where there are maybe more hydrogen vehicles uh, operating than anywhere else in the world, uh, you see that uh, we we are very much sort of in an overstrained condition, right? So we, we have more vehicles than we have uh, hydrogen stations needed to support them, and this is why we have a, a very strong sort of uh, push to develop more infrastructure in California and, and the need to sort of satisfy a, a very deep demand uh, for the technology from our customers. Uh, and it is, um, I think, a very good example of how this rollout uh, can work. And and so the, the passenger market for hydrogen vehicles absolutely will grow um, just because, uh, I mean, first of all, Toyota, as you, as you may know, has announced already that we have a step function increase in production um, starting uh, really from, from this year. So we've been building roughly 3,000 units a year for passenger vehicles and starting towards the end of this year being next year we'll jump that up by an order of magnitude so we'll start building 30,000 units uh, per year and of course not all those units are destined for california but uh, but for the global markets of course uh, western europe um, japan and now increasingly new markets are coming online so canada australia china and even the middle east so what we really appreciate and uh, like about uh, fuel cells is the flexibility and the scalability so we can you can do it in everything from a forklift, which we do today, all the way up to uh, to this very large 80,000-pound, you know, 40-ton heavy-duty truck moving cargo around. So we, we think it offers uh, really the ability to transformation or to transform, I should say, the, the entire value chain, if you will, for, uh, for vehicles. 
And and I appreciate that. And I think the stepping up is fantastic going from, uh, as you say, 3,000 unit manufacturing capability up to 30,000 is, is significant. I just want to push you a little bit again. You know, you talked about this glide path. If you're talking about where the cost kind of reductions are going to come, there's obviously always some manufacturing cost reductions simply by buying on a larger volume. Um, but, you know, it would be really interesting to kind of get a sense of where you see those costs mainly coming down. Is it on the fuel cell side? Is it on the hydrogen storage side? And, you know, Deloitte did a report with Ballard um, that came out this January saying that uh, fuel cell electric buses will be at parity on a total cost of ownership basis around 2025 against battery electric and against diesel. So, you know, do you have any kind of sense of, you know, when we might see a Mirai that's going to be coming in at $40,000 or below $40,000 in the consumer market? Yes, obviously I can't share with you our sort of uh, internal cost numbers, but I, I will say that in not too distant future, certainly we, uh, we we've made very significant uh, improvements in both the uh, technology itself on the company next generation MRI, but also um, in the costs and, and that uh, were achieved in order to to deliver those those advancements. So, you know, similar to to most kind of advanced technology and sort of new budding industries, you know, we're we're accelerating product improvements while simultaneously accelerating cost reduction, which, you know, these things don't normally um, kind of don't go in opposite directions, but um, but in this case they are, which is which is really nice, right? So we achieving cost reduction while making a better product. Um, and on where it's going to come from, it's going to come, um, so as I mentioned earlier, we don't, we don't have any sort of fundamental reasons uh, for, for lower costs in fuel cells, unlike we do with battery chemistry. So we're not waiting to invent some new material. It's really a combination of a few things. It's it's about uh, getting scale production. That's uh, That's a big one. Um, and also removing and, and re-engineering certain parts um, that can be changed and can be substituted for, for lower cost materials. Um, you know, when we f- you make the first vehicle, you, you make it. Uh, uh, you're especially careful with how you do things, and you make sure there's no issues. But as you do this, you learn that okay, some things can change, and we can adapt. You know, we can find ways to uh, eke out costs. Tank winding is another one. So you know, tanks are very expensive, and that's primarily because there's a lot of carbon fiber. So how do we develop and innovate new ways of winding tanks that allow us to reduce the amount of carbon fiber we use, for example? And what gives me a lot of confidence, uh, Toyota, is that this is this is sort of you know what our company does best, right? It's production engineering. So um, we uh, we are a culture of, of figuring out how to um, reduce costs uh, on, on products and make them better at the same time. And we do it across our gasoline and diesel powered lineups today. And, and hybrids are another great example, right? So, uh, you know, we're roughly, uh, I can't remember the number, maybe a fifth or, or, or so um, of the cost of the original hybrid system today in the current generation, Ryan. We've only had four generations. So um, very big, very big reductions are possible. And Craig, sticking with the the multiple models and the and bringing uh, new models to market, does Toyota have any plans to bring an SUV model or or other forms of FCEVs to to the market uh, in the next year or so in the coming years? Uh, in addition to the Mirai, yeah, it's a, it's a great question about products. So, um, of course, I can't uh, spoil the fun and, and tell you everything that we <laughs> have planned. Craig, if you ever um, if Toyota ever wants to make their big product announcements on a podcast, uh, <laughs> it's an open invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think that uh, I think that what I can say is that um, obviously, if you think about what we've done, we've gone from three thousand to thirty thousand units, and the next step function for the next generation, you know, probably we would expect it to be uh, even bigger than that. And so, to do this, obviously, we're going to need to um, expand uh, the segments that we operate in. And, um, so, I would say that uh, every segment um, is is on the uh, is on the board for a potential product, and we will um, continue to you know, kind of evaluate the marketplace and and judge which one we think, uh, you know, not only a customer wants, but we can also develop a compelling product into. 
Craig, following on a little bit from, you know, obviously the step function in, in uh, units delivered and, and the, the kind of California infrastructure development, how, how are you guys integrating with that kind of infrastructure planning process? And, you know, I suppose the next question that follows on is when can we uh, expect the first transcontinental uh, U.S. journey of a, a, a Toyota vehicle? Mm-hmm. Um, when we started the development of this program uh, back in you know, kind of 2010, 2011, you know, we, we started looking at the hydrogen structure space and, and how much, um, you know, was going to be available at the, at the time we were projecting the launch was, was 2015. And so uh, we we had to get involved in the uh, in the infrastructure side probably a little bit more than we were originally expecting, and this is because generally, right, we don't view ourselves as a, a maker of infrastructure, whether it be roads for cars or, or stations uh, for, for fuel cell vehicles. But um, we recognized that it was in a very new and growing industry, and there were um, a lot of concerns about whether or not you know car companies would really deliver vehicles. So, um, so I think that led us to be very involved uh, in infrastructure planning, and we continue to this day to be very involved. So we, we you know we helped start a company here in California called First Cell. And from that, we then kind of transitioned to a, into a relationship uh, with Aaron Keed, where we were working on developing stations, not only in California, but also in the Northeast states, um, uh, which, which is still under development. And then from there, we, we launched a uh, partnership with Shell to develop some stations in Northern California. And, and we continue to look for other opportunities um, with them and with, uh, with, with new partners. Um, and the same is true on the heavy duty side. So we uh, developed a new heavy duty station here with our own uh, technology. Uh, here in our offices in Los Angeles, and we've uh, recently partnered again with Shell um, and the state of California to build three new sites in the greater uh, sort of LA port area that will support the trucks. So these are uh, new developments, um, you know, kind of first of its kind, heavy duty, so more than one ton a day capacity, filling filling these Class A trucks that I had mentioned earlier. So a lot of what we do is is also supporting uh, that and, and making sure that the the infrastructure and, and the trucks and the cars kind of go hand in hand, right? So infrastructure is a big issue for any technology that's not gasoline or diesel, right? So we, we sort of take for granted that we can drive to a gasoline station anywhere in, in the States or, or in the rest of the world for that matter and fill up, uh, you know, sort of with uh, with any uh, – with all sorts of freedoms, right? There's, there's no, there's really no limitation on this. But if you're charging an electric vehicle or you're filling a hydrogen vehicle, but the same is not true. And you, you need to, you know, be coordinated both in, uh, in, in both sets of technology rollouts, right? So I think that people often think that the EVs are a little bit easier because you do have the opportunity for home charging. And I would say that's very true. And in, in some cases, uh, it tends to be not true in, in cities um, where you have high density living, which also happens to be what people buy electric vehicles. So uh, there, there isn't, you know, there, there's challenges on both sides, and I think that uh, both industries would do well to, to stay very closely aligned um, to make sure that uh, the vehicles aren't getting out ahead of the stations too much. I think the other way around works fine. Stations can get out ahead of the, uh, the vehicles uh, for a short period of time, but no point in building a car that can't be uh, fueled either with electrons or, uh, or with uh, hydrogen molecules. And then trans, uh, transcontinental journey, that's a good question. So, uh, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. We have already done a sort of uh, trans-Alaskan highway trip we did that back in 2006 or 2007 we drove from uh, from Fairbanks Alaska all the way to Vancouver along what's called the Alcan Highway. We did that as a development uh, trip. We, we filmed it. I'm sure there's still tons of footage online for that. So it is possible to do it. Of course, we have to bring our fuel along with us. And today, the same would be true if you wanted to go from Los Angeles to New York. Uh, you know, the United States is a, it's a big piece of uh, big piece of geography, so you wouldn't really be able to find stations along the way. But it's entirely possible uh, if, you, if you had your own fuel. I think you know, the infrastructure piece, you know, you're talking about some of the challenges there. And actually, I mean, the other challenge 
also that sort of wasn't mentioned there is kind of safety and public acceptance, you know, and obviously refueling stations have had um, a lot of safety concerns in some areas. And um, they, fortunately, there haven't been too many instances, but there have been one or two. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask if you'd comment on is the fact that um, you know, if I go on the Toyota website, you have these uh, sort of four basic principles that you describe around hydrogen safety in a fuel cell electric vehicle. And I wonder maybe if you could talk a little bit to our listeners about that, because I think people who don't understand anything about fuel cell vehicles um, really do struggle to grasp this. You know, I, I've sat in discussions with people where they think I'm literally saying they should be driving around in a bomb, you know, and they get very nervous and very scared. And they're kind of like, are you combusting it? What happens if it leaks? You know, there is a genuine, you know, and it's, it's not coming from a bad place. It's just there is a lack of understanding. So maybe you could talk a little bit to some of the safety features Toyota put in, um, you know, and explain a little bit why, you know, that should give people some confidence around these vehicles. Good question. Uh, it's not one that we we hear uh, a whole lot anymore, and I think that's maybe because you know there are now you know sort of globally around seven or eight thousand vehicles running around here in California, around six thousand or so. So it's um, something that people are starting to get sort of more more comfortable with. But I understand the general sort of concern. But the good news is that the vehicles are, are very very safe, and it's because hydrogen generally as a fuel it is a very safe uh, fuel because. Um, it has lots of properties that that are um, that are conducive to uh, to creating a safe environment. So, for example, it is you know I think everyone knows the lightest element uh, on the uh, in the universe, which means that if there is a leak of hydrogen, then it tends to uh, uh, tend it absolutely always just evacuates and and goes into the atmosphere very quickly. So there is no uh, pooling of hydrogen, if you will. It doesn't sit underneath your vehicle or anywhere else for that matter, creating an opportunity for um, for something to come along and uh, ignite it uh, in a spark kind of environment. So from that point of view, um, very, very safe. I think just looking at the vehicle by itself, obviously safety is very important uh, for all manufacturers and Toyota included. And so what we do is we design systems that, um, that make the vehicle uh, inherently safe. So right, so valves are always in the shut off position naturally, and they're only open when, when hydrogen is needed. And we only keep hydrogen at high pressure in one place in the vehicle, and that's in the tanks. And the tanks are a, a very significant structure. In fact, if you were to have uh, an accident in the car, uh, it's very high probability that the tanks would survive uh, over the sheet metal just because because uh, carbon fiber is a very, very strong material, and uh, when you have a lot of it, it, it creates a very insulated condition for the uh, for the hydrogen. But once the hydrogen is summoned, if you will, to, to provide power to the motor, as soon as the hydrogen leaves the tank, uh, it is immediately at atmospheric pressure. So there's no more high pressure. You're not, you're not driving around with high pressure hydrogen running underneath the, the vehicle on the line, such that if the, you know, there was an accident and the line was severed, um, you would have this high pressure gas uh, evacuating the car. It would be all just at normal ambient uh, pressures, which is quite benign. So I think that um, sort of proof is in the pudding. We've, we've had lots, uh, unfortunately, for people who, who've been in them, but lots of, uh, of vehicle uh, incidents now and accidents, including uh, to myself, in fact, where I was rear-ended on freeways here in Los Angeles, and uh, there were no problems, walked away, and the cars handled, uh, handled themselves well, and the hydrogen uh, power chain bits were, uh, uh, were all preserved well and, and survived the crash. Speaking of driving in LA, which I'm sure is a nightmare in and of itself, but uh, speaking of speaking of being in a fuel cell vehicle in California, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I think it's really interesting that California is really, I mean, globally, as my understanding from the from the data we have in front of us, is almost a little more than half of the global stock of fuel cell vehicles. Is there a particular reason that it's caught on so dramatically compared to other markets in California? 
uh, versus global markets? Or is there a particular reason that California is attractive in that sense? I think there's a, quite a few reasons why, why California has this situation. Uh, one of them, of course, is that they, the state in and of itself is a huge um, advocate and a huge proponent of uh, low emissions or zero emissions technologies, right? They, they have they, they create incentives, not just for OEMs to build vehicles, but also for customers to, you know, more importantly, to buy them. Um, and then they then they provide uh, funds for the development of the of the fueling infrastructure needed to support them. So whether that's electric vehicle charging or hydrogen stations, uh, you know, the, the state awards and, and gives out uh, um, lots and lots of money uh, every year uh, to uh, to propagate the technologies. And so that's sort of one key reason. The other is I think you know we we live in a place um, that is generally very progressive in terms of the way they think about the environment and a lot of activity here. You know, since the 70s about uh, you know, cleaning air and and uh, creating a better um, it's more sustainable living environment. And, uh, you know, the other one that I think is, you know, sort of often ignored is that this is a, sort of a safe playing field for, for all the autos, right? So there are no, there's no one auto company that's, uh, that's headquartered um, in California, right? Unlike in Japan or in Germany or in other parts of the world where you have, you know, companies that are sort of leading their, their, their national charge in California, it's a, kind of a fair playing ground for everyone. So, Craig, one somewhat, uh, I suppose, tangential kind of question, but but very much related to to the kind of the theme that we've kind of covered all through today. I, I've got to just ask about the kind of role of large scale uh, class eight trucks, right? You mentioned eighty eighty thousand pound capacity. I'm pretty sure that's that's kind of class eight. You know, where where do yeah. you guys see that market? What does it stand, you know, to do in terms of the transition? You know, in, in terms of fuel cell electric vehicles. So it's uh, it's a really big opportunity. I mean, we at Tudor are focused uh, primarily right now on what's called the drayage market, and that's what we launched uh, and started developing the heavy duty truck for. And drayage is just simply a fancy term for moving uh, shipping containers uh, into and out of the the port to their to their shipping locations. So here, Port of Los Angeles, Port of Long Beach, it's the uh, the ninth largest port in the world, but the f- first largest point port uh, in the U.S. Uh, lots and lots of. Uh, containers coming through every day and those containers are all being moved around uh, you know relatively short distances anywhere from four miles to maybe 60 miles um, each day uh, using uh, diesel diesel powered uh, trucks and, and those trucks sit and idle uh, at the port for a very long time and creating uh, creating a <clears throat> significant uh, emissions condition or situation um, for the port itself for, and for the, the, the neighbors and the inhabitants that live in and around the port and so um, it has been long been a a concern for the regulators in California to help sort that out, if you will, and, and figure out a way to clean up uh, the air and the emissions uh, from the Port of Los Angeles, Port of Long Beach. And so about five years ago, we decided that we would uh, try to help them do this, and uh, we started working on, on the truck. And so today we have two prototypes running around uh, the port, kind of collecting data actively. And uh, that program I mentioned to you earlier with the state of California is uh, in a project that's going to uh, have us building 10 trucks. Uh, those will be all finished this year. And those 10 additional trucks will run around the port also collecting data and providing feedback um, to the state and, and to us about uh, about the possibilities for, for future developments of trucks. There are about 16,000 uh, units in operation or trucks in operation in around the port of LA, port of Long Beach. And um, I think uh, having a goal of converting all of those to, uh, to hydrogen um, is, a, is one that we're, uh, we're actively kind of working on. Okay, well, Craig, I think I think that's all the questions we have. So thank you very much for your for your time today and and for kind of giving us an overview of what sounds like a pretty exciting couple of years to come for Toyota. 
Absolutely. It was my pleasure to talk today. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the call and thanks for the questions. Thanks so much, Craig. We really enjoyed it. Please come back and announce uh, anything you guys have in the pipeline. <laughs> All right. We expect the uh, exclusive release on the Toyota SUV. Andrew will be disappointed yeah. otherwise. This is a, this is a binding, binding oral contract. <laughs> Noted this, boys. Thank you very much. All right, guys. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, what, uh, Chris? I know you wanted us to keep going. What, what, what was it? What was your highlight from talking to Craig? He had a lot to say. We we covered a lot of ground with Craig. So key takeaways from from the London side of things. Absolutely, we covered quite a few different areas, and and I think rightly so. I mean, Toyota have been doing a lot of things. They're well known in the space. So I, I guess uh, my curiosity got the better of me. I guess takeaways. One was, for me, the fact that this still is quite a California play. I think it's quite hard to get around that. Uh, and obviously, Craig is um, obviously North American head. But actually, if you look at most of Toyota's deployments, uh, I think it's I think there's you were saying there were 6,000 fuel cell electric vehicles in California. I think that might just be mostly Toyota numbers because I think the total number is just over 8,000. But by contrast, the whole of the UK is, I think, 250 Toyota Mirai, something around that. So it, it really is a dominant market. So he's in a, in some senses, they're kind of a better test case for how the early deployments of fuel cell electric vehicles have gone. Um, it's also interesting, the timeline. I mean, they said they started developing in 2010 at the same time as the Prius. So it's kind of interesting to see the that disparity. Well, I actually think he said 1992, right? Isn't that what he said? Or did I mishear that? Yeah, you're right. He said the same time as the Prius, but then he mentioned something around development in 2010. So Yeah, sure. I no, I mean, obviously, obviously the Mirai was not out in 1992, right? Or maybe it was, but we, it certainly wasn't open to, to the general <laughs> public. So, yeah, yeah no, right. I mean, I'm I not to not to distract from your point. I was just uh, saying it's, I was shocked when he said. Uh, that they had started down this road at the same time as the Prius. And I had heard 1992, which I, I thought was mind-blowing. That was interesting to me. Yeah, it is. And it shows you how long these things take. And I mean, equally, you know, when you were talking about the scaling up, I think it's really interesting that they were, you know, an insight for me that I hadn't really quite got the nuance around was that um, I know that storage on a lot of these vehicles is an expensive source of cost. And, you know, him explaining, well, it's actually to do with the the amount of carbon fiber that we're using in the tanks. Um, you know, and so I think they're called class four is the type of pressurized canisters that are used for fuel cell vehicles. And again, we didn't get too into the weeds on this, but um, most sort of fuel cell buses and a lot of the early fuel cell vehicles were about 350 bar pressure. Um, but the new fuel cell electric vehicles like the Mirai and the Hyundai Nexo are 700 bar. So you obviously get a higher energy density, which is great for range, but it does mean you have much higher pressure hydrogen and, you know, you you need really, really good storage tanks for that. Uh, and it does add to cost. So it was good that he kind of also touched on that too. I think that was interesting and an important insight for me. Patrick, your thoughts? I suppose to start with, a step change going from 3,000 vehicle production per annum to towards 30,000 vehicles per annum is a pretty strong statement of intent. I think, you know, as as Craig mentioned, you know, they, they are involved in the development of the infrastructure. They're very much committed to developing this pathway as, as part of the, the range of solutions. And that was, that was the other piece that, you know, we keep coming back to this theme, different vehicles, different approaches with different use cases. Good to hear that, but also to see Toyota really, you know, coming into this with, a, with the intent of building these markets is, is something that, not so much to give us hope, but like we should be enthusiastic in the next few years about actually seeing stuff get deployed and, and infrastructure built to make these uh, far more readily 
uh, used kind of vehicle. So that's that's encouraging. I think more broadly, you know, between the trucks and passenger vehicles, you've, you've got a pretty robust uh, kind of market uh, market potential, right? So if they actually develop scale and infrastructure and whatnot, we could see an awful lot of cars on, on, on the roads, maybe a lot quicker than we think. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I want to come back to the infrastructure discussion uh, in a second, but Chris, you brought up uh, pricing and bringing down the price point of the Mirai uh, specifically, but can you give a little bit of an idea of what we're looking at, uh, maybe California and UK prices for, for a Mirai these days, and then maybe some about what their competitors are pricing at, if you have that in front of you? Gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, it's kind of strange, actually. So I think, I believe that the Mirai currently without, if you if you were just buying the unit without any support in California, and Patrick will tell me if I'm massively off, is about sixty dollars to $65,000. And I think the Nexo, Hyundai Nexo, is about $55,000. Uh, and where that's kind of interesting is that in the UK, it's £65,000 for the Toyota Mirai. So, you know, they've almost done a straight one for one across, which is quite interesting. But then the thing is, obviously, because it's a nascent market, you're not quite getting that price, right? So I think if you go and talk to Toyota today, there's uh, a number of uh, different government incentives that are there, which bring the cost of the vehicle. I I've heard some quotes below £40,000 if you want to buy the vehicle up front. But also leasing seems to be the dominant model. I know in the early days in California, it was pretty much exclusively leasing, partly because there are very limited refueling stations. There's very, very few people and locations that can actually do the servicing on these vehicles. Uh, so that's also been a little bit of a shift is that, you know, I think almost all the early units were pretty much leased. And it's only really now that people are starting to actually buy the things. There's, there's one other aspect of that, particularly in the, the California market, as far as I know, you know, uh, some of the upfront price that you pay is offset by virtue of uh, the, the manufacturers providing you essentially with a fuel card. And I forget exactly yeah, my how recollection, much it is, it's 10 or $15,000. Yeah, my recollection for the, for the Nexo, the last thing I read about four or five months ago was that you're getting included with your purchase price is 13000 ish in yeah. fuel credit. Uh, which, you know, I suppose can go either way. Uh, but yeah, sorry, Patrick. I think, I think it gets a typical user kind of um, probably um, a couple of years maybe even of, of use, right? So um, it's worth noting that the, the pricing structure is a little different than, you know, and Chris spoke about the leasing aspect, but it's it's a, diff a little bit different even purchasing these these vehicles right now than, than it is purchasing the, the conventional car where you well, sure. immediately drive to the, the gas station and fill it up. Sure. No, and I mean, I would have to, to double check this, but my I, my recollection is that the federal tax credit applies here similarly. So $7,500, the purchase price, and then California's, I believe, is the same, or not the same amount, but BEV credit and FCEV credit are the, are the same. So you get a significant drop, plus you're getting thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in fuel, which... Yeah, it's pretty substantial. But to the fueling yeah, question, I mean, it's just yeah, also ahead. just two, two, two other price wing ones because we've just talked about Hyundai and Toyota. I mean, I think the Mercedes F-Cell was, was being floated around 50,000, 55,000 euros. I think was the last time I'd seen something it's on that. It's the most affordable Mercedes I've ever heard of. Um, yeah, I know, right? Um, although I think the GLC <laughs> for petrol is about 32,000 pounds again, so I'm not quite... Yeah, but quite, you're not getting not any, apples any apples. credits with that one. 
Yeah, that's true. And then I think the um, I know that in China, there were vehicles that were coming in below 40,000. But again, it's, it's kind of a trade off of what you want in terms of um, range. You know, so I, there's a you can buy a van, uh, a Chinese. Uh, so there's a French company called Symbio that do a Renault uh, Kangoo, which is a battery electric uh, van. But they basically put in a fuel cell range extender on that. And I think that latest unit that does up to three tons is 44,000 euros, what they were marketing that at. Which, you know, sounds relatively low, but it's because it's a battery electric vehicle with a fuel cell range extender as opposed to being a fuel cell electric. So th there are things like that also in the market that, you know, is probably worth discussing as well. And maybe that's where for some countries and some markets, as Patrick is always keen of reminding us, this goes. Maybe not everyone does have a full fuel cell electric vehicle that's just running on a fuel cell with a tiny supercapacitor. Maybe actually it is the case that for some markets you have a bigger battery and the fuel cells just doing like that extra bit of range just to get you beyond that 100 or 200 mile that you need. Speaking of uh, various uh, makers, what's my entry price for Hyperion, Chris? Have they published that yet? <laughs> no. Well, so, yeah, for the listeners who, who probably have not heard of this, um, Hyperion Motors is, um, is this car company that sort of sneakily uh, made this press release at uh, was it the New York auto show um andrew i think that's where they they made the release and they've basically given sounds, almost no sounds details vaguely right it's either new york or la we can ass <laughs> safely assume it's one of those yeah and uh they've basically given absolutely no details uh to anyone they've just released a number of photos um they've said they've been working on technology with nasa and uh they've been doing this since i think 2011 according to the the sort of press release they gave out and watch the space but you know it would be very exciting to see um, a kind of uh, fuel cell vehicle that really captures the eye of the public in the same way that the Tesla uh, Model S originally did. I know some people have said that potentially the new generation Toyota Mirai could be that, and it did get a lot of really positive feedback from people. So I think it is good that you know people are focusing on not just functionally capable fuel cell cars, but also ones that are glamorous and exciting. And as Jigo Shah said on a previous episode, are the kind of cars people actually want to buy. Yeah, well, I can tell you the Hyperion is pretty impressive. It's a good-looking car, so... You know, sign me up, I guess. But on the uh, on the infrastructure side, coming back to the the fueling infrastructure side, guys, even Craig, he didn't seem. Let's put it this way: we're not there yet, right? I mean, he made that very clear. In order to do a Trans Alaskan trip, they had to bring their own fuel with them. And you know, I, I realize that this is an investment. You know, this is an investment with a longer time horizon, and this is something that we are working on. And but, what is your guys' view of, for instance, where North America stands? with fueling infrastructure what are the where are the key pain points that need to be addressed in the near term in the medium term in the long term where are the biggest where are the biggest bottlenecks i think this comes back to I realize design. that's a very big picture question right? right and this is it right you're talking about designing a full continent-wide uh, infrastructure system right and we're replacing if if this is the way it rolls, you're replacing the 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 kind of the fuel used at every gas station across the the U.S. and Canada, for instance, right? Let's say. So if you want to drive from Alaska to Florida, you need that infrastructure every, periodically. And same way, if you do the LA to, to to New York run, you need it as well, right? Um, you know, this is why, for instance, the the, the Nikola kind of 700 station plan like is is pretty pretty visionary, right? Like it's it's not a it's not a straightforward thing to build out 
hundreds upon hundreds of fueling stations using, you know, obviously using electrolysis and and not necessarily using, um, you know, natural gases, uh, methane uh, reformed uh, kind of uh, natural gas to produce the hydrogen. You know, you're talking about infrastructure that simply isn't there today. The one thing we do have is we have an electricity grid. We also have abundant natural resources in the form of wind and solar across the, you know, across the world, which in some cases are curtailed, in which case if your curtailed power can get to your local gas station or equivalent, now you've got cheap electricity being transformed into hydrogen, right? So it, it requires a systemic approach to design. It also requires the mass build-out of renewable energy resources. And, and we need them on, on a scale that, that right now is probably dramatically bigger than, than what we've had already. This is the big kind of effort around this space. So, you know, California, big market, there will be more infrastructure built there because there is now demand for it. And if there's 30,000 more vehicles, albeit Craig said specifically, they're not all going to California. But if if there's 30,000 odd vehicles more dropping onto those roads, there is more need for these sort of stations. And the demand for hydrogen will dramatically increase as a consequence of that. The question is, how many other Californias will there be and how quickly they'll roll out? Yeah, and Chris, I mean, I I know you know you're you're our our European market expert here, and uh, we did talk about this with Everfuel uh, on the last episode. But just to recap, are the are the challenges confronted in Europe on refueling infrastructure similar to those that we're seeing in North America? Are they different? How do you how do you envision that? Do you agree with base? Is it basically the same things that Patrick has identified on our side? It's slightly different insofar as I think what what's been unusual in America is that it's been the passenger vehicle market that's kind of moved faster. Whereas if you look at Europe, it's been much more focused on sort of buses and taxi fleets um, and and even local government and people like police forces. So it's quite strange to see why that split has necessarily worked in that particular way. And I suspect part of it is to do with the fact that, you know, at least in the States, that people are very keen to have the sort of personal ownership of a vehicle. Uh, And so that kind of emotively has kind of worked. And I don't know, it's a sort of desirable commute, uh, consumer product, and it's an easier way to scale to sell a thousand fuel cell electric vehicles than a thousand buses. Um, but so all of that has an impact on infrastructure, right? Because if I'm doing hydrogen refueling infrastructure for buses and they've got to return to a bus depot, I'm having a very different conversation to, you know, I have people living between LA and San Diego and I have to have hydrogen capability for those two cities and potentially a few other places that they might want to go. So I think that's one very obvious difference. The other obvious one to me is also to do with the fact that if you look at the sort of distances involved too, I mean, I can drive from London to York, which would be kind of a four, four and a half hour drive is about 270 miles. I get from London to Newcastle, which is sort of towards the top of the north of England in 400 miles and Edinburgh call it 500 ish, 550 miles. So, you know, that's kind of the range, right, where you're starting to get between some of the largest cities in the UK. In the US, it's just a different game. It's just a far bigger country. So again, the infrastructure doesn't need to be as comprehensive in the same way. So I think that that makes a big difference to the discussions. And and clearly also the fact that the governments in Europe, like the German government and the Dutch and the French, are willing to spend a huge amount of state money to build out an infrastructure before the cars are ready is clearly also a discussion that's very different in Europe than it is in the US. Chris, one thing, bringing everything back to Toyota and uh, maybe shifting gears away from both Europe and the United States and North America, 
Toyota made a lot of news recently announcing the Woven City. What is that all about? Do you want to take us through exactly what Toyota is doing there? I, I know we wanted to ask Craig about it, but it, uh, I don't want to speak for him, but I think it may have fallen out of his outside of his purview. But I wonder if you could take us through a little bit of what, uh, what Toyota is doing with the Woven City. Well, look, I mean, it's a shame we didn't ask him, but I mean, obviously, it was quite transport related, as you pointed out. I mean, essentially, um, the Woven City is one of a number of these... Um, so cities of the future that large companies, especially in Asia, have been keen to promote. Um, I believe it's this particular city is 175 acres. You know, it's going to be a variety of new technologies. So they're talking about things like robotics, smart homes, AI. But what's obviously relevant for us is that they're looking at things like stationary fuel cells to do some of the power. They're looking at fuel cell electric vehicles, um, both passenger and also buses. And I, I assume also sort of things like trucks down the line. So it's kind of interesting to basically see you know, already thinking about how hydrogen can become this kind of vector across transport, across heat and power, as we've talked about on the show before, and trying to make that a reality. And, you know, Toyota aren't the only ones. There are a number of companies in South Korea and China looking at this, but it's exciting. And it's in some senses, it's kind of unusual, I guess, to see a a single company trying to bring all these different things together in something as tangible as a city where people live and businesses interact together. So I think it's going to be very exciting and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get more details off them as this thing progresses. Well, that does it for us this week on everything about hydrogen. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you to Patrick and Chris for dialing in from London and for joining me in the studio personally. And a big thank you to Craig Scott of Toyota North America. We really enjoyed chatting with him, and we hope Toyota will come back and join us again soon. And last but not least, if you've enjoyed our show, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us reach a broader audience, and we hope you'll come back and join us again next time. Thank you very much.